Well, Happy New Year. Uh, every year I begin the year off with the exact same message. Uh, and that is, uh, I go back to a message that Jesus preached. It's the longest uh, recorded sermon we have of Jesus in the, in the New Testament. It's from Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He ends that message with this parable. Many people are familiar with the parable, uh, where he talks about how there's two people who build in life, one who builds on the rock and one who builds on the sand. And difficulty is going to come in your life, and every year is going to have some. 2021, of course, obviously had some, and 2022, as better as it may be, it's still going to have difficult things that come into your life. And so Jesus says, when the rains come and beat on your house, if it's built on the rock, it's going to last. If it's built on the sand, it's going to get washed away. Now, a lot of times we think to ourselves that, well, I clearly am building on the rock because I go to church. And it's those people out there who aren't at church, they're building on the sand. But we miss the fact that when Jesus says this, he talks about how both people were listening to him. Both people are hearing the teachings of Jesus. The difference between the one who builds on the rock and the builds on the sand, he says, the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, in other words, does the things I'm talking about, is building on the rock. But the person who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is building on the sand. And it's this picture of, so you were here, let's just say you had a perfect attendance record for 2021. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I don't know how you did that, but I mean, it seems like everybody was out at some point. But it doesn't matter unless you're actually applying those messages. And so before we fill up the calendar with another year's worth of messages, I like to kind of go back over and say, here's all the things that God has taught us from his word this past year. The question is, are we doing any of those things? Because 2020, 2022 will be very similar in your life as far as your experience goes, as was last year, unless you do something different. Now, other thing about this year in review, which is kind of interesting, is normally on a given year, I can kind of go back and relive every one of the messages from memory instantly. This year, though, I was going back and I kept going, was that sermon from this year? Was that series this year? And, and I, so I started talking to the staff about this. They're like, yeah, I had the same thing. I can't believe that was this year. You know why? Pastor Alex pointed out, a lot of the messages from this past year, we planned the end of 20, 2019. They were supposed to happen in 2020, but with the pandemic, they all got pushed in the calendar. So I'm like, yeah, I really thought the Beauty from Ashes series was from like years ago, because we planned it back in 2019. It actually didn't get, come out till this year. So what I like to do is I like to go through the entire year, all the messages. I always say this is the best year uh, to come, or best, best week of the year to come, because you can cram a year's worth of messages into about 30, 40 minutes and kind of get a, a crash course, like the cliff notes of everything. But it's also maybe an opportunity for you to go back and say, I need to go back and re-listen to that. I need to go back and re-look at my notes of that. I need to ask myself, am I doing those things? I need to be reminded of those messages. So with that, uh, let's start off our look at this past year. Uh, we're looking at the poisons and toxins in our life called detox. Stuff that's toxic is typically a slow killer. And that's why you can be breathing in toxins, you can be drinking or eating in and ingesting toxins and, toxins and not even know it. No effect at all. You know, you'll just continue to breathe the air that has asbestos in it, not even know you're actually damaging your lungs permanently. You have no idea, but that's the way a toxin works. And there are toxins in our life that we don't even realize the damage that they're doing to us. And so in that series, we looked at some things like relationships, social media, people-pleasing, pornography, politics, uh, perfectionism. Uh, and, and each one of those things has a way of coming into our life, not even realizing it's altering and changing who we are. Um, so we talked about 
toxic relationships. I highly encourage you, if you're going to make any decision based on what I'm about to say about toxic relationships, please go listen to those two messages and listen to all the disclaimers in there before you say, Pastor Steve has said, I can get a divorce. No, that's not what I'm saying. It, but we did talk about how there are relationships that do become toxic, either because you've changed, they've changed, the dynamics of the relationship have changed in such a way that what was once a blessing in your life no longer is. And so oftentimes people will hang on to relationships that they should have walked away from or are limited in some fashion uh, because they're hoping or thinking that blessing is going to return or think that's the only way they'll ever get back to that state of blessing. And what actually happens is God cannot bless the place where you're at now or where he wants to take you because that toxic relationship is continuing to hold you back. We also looked in that series about toxic social media. How many of y'all have made changes in your social media this past year because of that? Okay, great. I had impact on about four people. That's wonderful. <laughs> excited about this next year and all that will happen because of that. <laughs> so encouraging. Um, in there, though, we talked, talked in there about how the thing about social media and pornography and even politics is the more you expose yourself to those things, what you don't realize is they are changing the way you perceive your world. They're, they're changing your mind. They're changing uh, what you're satisfied with, well, what you're uh, interested in, uh, how you view people, uh, how you view relationships. Slowly but surely, they're changing and shifting your ability to be content, your ability to be at peace. And you don't even realize the shift is happening. Uh, and Facebook doesn't want you to know, but they'll so sometimes come out and tell you flat out, yes, they want to change you because that's how they make money. They make money by altering your state. They're doing psychological experiments on you every single day without you even knowing it. So they can alter your mindset to make more money off of you. Pornography, is, the industry does the exact same thing. They make their money by altering how you see relationships. Politics, they get elected and keep their power by altering how you see one another and how you see relationships and you see the destruction it has in our country. We all say, we're far more divided. Why? Because that serves our best interest or a politician's best interest. These things are changing the way you see the world and see reality slowly but surely in a toxic way. And unless you're aware of it, at some point, it's going to destroy things in your life, if not your very self. And so I highly encourage you to go back over and re-listen to some of the messages from that series, especially the one on social media, uh, as big of a, an impact as that is in our lives. Uh, after that, uh, we went into a series uh, really answering a question. People often say, where did the name Essential Church come from? And we typically will answer, well, we want to remove every non-essential barrier between people and God, which then gets the follow-up question. What's a, what's a non-essential barrier? Well, we did a whole series just about the non-essential barriers between people and God called... God for the Jennies in our life who invite us to come to church. Uh, the problem in the 21st century is, in most people's minds, or often in some cases, the church seems to become more of a hindrance to somebody having a relationship with Jesus Christ than a help, uh, which is why many people see the church as non-essential part of their life. That's why you invite them to church and look at you like, why on earth would I go there? And, and it's, it's, 
it's crazy because the church is often seen as judgmental and hypocritical uh, and that they hate groups of people because of decisions they've made or choices they've made that are different than theirs. Yet you don't see that in Jesus. On top of that, when you ask people who don't want to go to church about Jesus, they'll typically have a positive impression of him. He seemed like he was a pretty nice guy. He seemed like he was really light, you know, easy to get along with. I might want to hang out with a guy like that. And yet the very institution that God founded to represent him and to be the embodiment of his person in our community oftentimes is completely disassociated with him in people's minds. Why is that? Well, that's something we want to set out to change. We often forget that when somebody first thinks about coming to church, there's a lot of anxiety about walking into a church. Uh, anytime you go to a new environment, there's some anxiety to it. Maybe for, if you go to a new command, you go to a new school, wherever it may be, there's always anxiety when you go somewhere new. Well, add to that new anxiety a spiritual battle that's actually going on at the same time. And so we want to try to remove all of those kind of non-essential barriers between people and God. Now, in the scriptures, we see that there's this metaphor that's used about planting and growing, that the gospel, in other words, the message that God loves you, wants to have a relationship with you that lasts for all eternity, uh, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that's what we call the gospel. Uh, In the scriptures, that's referred to as a seed that gets planted in somebody's life. Now, what the church's role is, is to be the soil, the environment where that seed can grow. And we all know if you've ever done planting, there's healthy soils and there's not healthy soils. A healthy soil in a church is one that is full of grace. A church should be full of grace. All of the people that Jesus met, all the people he came in contact with, you'll see, if you read through Jesus' life, you'll see there's people who he meets that have made a lot of mistakes, a lot of destructive life choices, a lot of people whose life didn't turn out like they thought it would, a lot of people hurt others with the decisions, and yet every single one of them felt accepted by Jesus Christ. The number one way that you show grace to somebody, or maybe the first way you show grace to somebody, is simply by acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean you agree with everything about their life. It just means that you accept them as a person and who they are, that you want to give them the opportunity for the, for the seed of the gospel to grow in their life in a place where they can be accepted and loved. And here's the thing. I want to make sure I reiterate this. I mentioned this that, met, that, that week, and I want to make sure I, I mention it again as many times as I can. If you're not on board with that, you don't understand that. You can really mess it up. You can really mess up everything we're trying to do here. Uh, I remember multiple church experiences I had uh, where I've walked in and sort of been blackballed the second I walked in. Uh, when I was in college, there was a group of guys who didn't like the fact that I was a fraternity guy showing up at church. They thought I was moving in on all their ladies or something. I don't... <laughs> really? Really? Uh, I remember one time I went to I visited a church in Baltimore, and uh, it was crowded for this Christmas program. It was freezing out. Everybody had on their big coats and like that. And so I came in, the only row I could find, it was a pew, to tell you, you know, it was a pew, the only place I could find to sit was this big, big coat. So I looked around, nobody seemed to be around, so I kind of shoved them aside a little bit and sat down. No lie, a lady in front of me turned around and said, that's where my coat was. And I'm like, she, I could have understood if she said, and I even said to her, I said, are you saving this for someone? She goes, no, that's where I put my coat. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'll go sit outside and leave the church because your coat needs a place. Now, that was sort of a drastic example. But any time that you treat somebody in a way that basically says, I'd rather my coat have a place in this church than you, it basically says, we're not a place for you. And you never saw that with Jesus Christ. He welcomed everybody in. And in that message, I went on to share this. Now, acceptance is the most tangible form of grace that we show. Acceptance is the most tangible form of grace that we show. In this church, there are. And now, as I list each one of these, know that when I listed each one of these, 
I didn't list anything in here that I couldn't put a person with. I couldn't put a name with. Okay, these aren't just random categories. These are actual people. In this church, there are Republicans, Democrats, and Libertarians. There are people who are rich and people who are poor. There are alcoholics and drug addicts, white-collar and blue-collar, officers enlisted, honorably discharged and dishonorably discharged people. There are people who said lightning would strike the roof or that the roof would fall in if they showed up, and both have happened, and the roof has fallen in on two separate people who both said the roof would fall in if they showed up, and I can't tell you how many times lightning has struck this building. <laughs> there are people with tattoos, piercings, plastic surgeries, wigs, toupees, shoe wedges to make them look taller. There are medical, people with medical conditions, special needs, and social anxieties. People with PTSD, anxiety, depression, and are bipolar. There are people with food addictions who eat too much and people with eating disorders who can't seem to eat at all. There are people who believe in a flat earth, evolution, karma, horoscopes, and Bigfoot. There are policemen and people who don't trust police in this church. There are people who have contemplated suicide and people who have lost people to suicide. There are porn addicts and sex workers in this church. There are people who are transgender and people who are in same-sex relationships. There are people who are hooking up, shacking up, shooting up, and often messing up. There are people who have had abortions, divorces, and affairs. There are people who have been in jail and people who have never even gotten a speeding ticket. There are people from other countries and cultures, people who are here legally and people who are here illegally. There are people who grew up in the Mormon church, the Catholic church, charismatic church, a fundamental church, and people who didn't grow up in any church at all. Now keep in mind, these aren't just categories. These are actual people that you go to church with. And so oftentimes we'll refer to somebody in one of these groups and call them, well, those people and develop a us versus them mentality. I want to make this very clear. When you talk about those people, we're those people. Those people all go to church with you. And you may think everybody here has the same political view as you or the same whatever view you may have. They don't because everybody needs Jesus. And we want to remove every non-essential barrier between people and God. And the number one way that you're going to show grace to somebody is show them acceptance and provide an environment where the gospel can change their life. That's what we're here to do. That's what this church is all about. Uh, that's what it means to be an essential church. Well, after that, we were ready for Easter uh, and a series that had been a long time in the planning uh, about healing from our brokenness uh, called Beauty from Ashes. It just got too hard. The hard is what makes it great. We're gonna win. We're gonna win! <laughs> You're gonna lose. You stink. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. Those two lines were spiritual truths I wanted people to take with them. It's supposed to be hard. Hard's what makes it so great. Uh, and then the other one is where he just says, we're going to win! You know, so why is it supposed to be hard? Why does God allow the hard? Uh, well, two things. One is, for many of you, the best things you have in life didn't come easy. They were a struggle. They were difficult. They took work. They took effort. Most things in life that are, that are worth having are a struggle to have. Other times, for many of you who everything came easy to you, you won't ever truly understand just how great you have it or how much you've been blessed until that's either been lost or been threatened to have lost and you go through a difficult time. 
And so that, that just sense of why is it that God allows the hard times? Well, you just have to understand the heart is what makes the great oh so great. Then the other thing about it is where he just says, we're going to win. Life is going to continue looking at you saying, you stink, you're going to lose, it's all over. There's plenty of voices out there saying that. And there's got to be something within you, a resolve that comes from God alone. And I just love that moment. He just kind of has this sense that wells up within his spirit that just says, no, we're going to win. We may have lost everything. Odds may be stacked against us. We're going to win. And then you chuck that glove at whatever that voice is. And hopefully no kids were hurt in the making of said film. So we talked about suffering and pain and loss, and the interesting thing about suffering, pain, and loss is so many people in their testimony will say suffering, pain, or loss is the very reason why they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, yet you'll have other people who say, I never went back to church after experiencing a season of suffering and pain and loss. So it's the reason people have a relationship with God, and sometimes it's the reason why people walk away from God. For some people, suffering, pain, and loss is the reason why they have such strength of character, for other people, it's why they seem to be void of all sense of character or morality or any decency in their life because of what they've gone through. Uh, for some people, it's a reason why they experience such a deep love in a marriage or a relationship or with God. For other people, it's the reason why they walked away from love, sometimes for good because of a season of, of pain and suffering and loss. And so you can experience both of them in very, very different ways. And along the way, as you go through pain, suffering, and loss, you'll go into, at some point in your life, if you haven't already, uh, what people call the pit, a, the darkness of despair, or the valley of the, sh- valley of the shadow of death. And it's a season where you begin to question, will anything good ever happen again in my life? I mean, can I really trust when God says he'll work all things together for the good of those who love him? Can I really trust that? That'll be put to the test in your life at some point where you will struggle to have any sense of hope. Uh, many of you all know my life verses, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord once again in my lifetime. That's out of Psalm 27, 13. Uh, it's that place where can you continue to have hope even in the midst of everything that's coming against you? And you have to be reminded, as God says, this is just a season. Difficult times are a season. Look at Ecclesiastes. It is a season uh, of mourning or season of loss, but other seasons come. And also in that series, we talked about how there are some things that are lost and they're lost for good. You know, I, I remember when I went through and dealt with death, I was like, you know, I realized that almost every other issue in life you can solve by money or forgiveness or time, not death. And so, so how do you deal with those kind of things? And you begin to realize that God is the one who ultimately is your source of blessing. These other things in life, whether it be people or jobs or experiences, they were simply conduits that God sent his blessing to you through. They weren't the source And just because you lost the source doesn't mean you've lost the blessing or the ultimate provider of that blessing. You just lost the conduit of it. Um, And your hope always remains in God. And so we started that series, though, on Easter. And the reason why we started on Easter is because if Easter teaches us anything, if the cross says anything to us, is that even in death, there's still hope. And we just went back and picture, what was it like for the disciples when they saw who they thought would be the savior of the world die on a cross? What God's saying in the middle of that moment is, it's never over and sometimes hope can transcend even death. Because ultimately, this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that will last for all eternity. Death isn't our end game. Uh, In that series, there were two verses that we focused in on. One was out of Psalm 126 verse 5 that says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. 
and just the very picture that you're going to be planting something in the midst of a difficult time that shows that you have this expectation that one day there's going to be a harvest again. One day the sun will come out once again. One day it will be a better day. And so in the midst of your difficult time, we need to be looking forward to what God is doing, even a time we can't see, so one day we can sing songs of joy. And in that series, we also talked about the songs of lament. Uh, if you're going through a difficult time, I encourage you to go back and, and re-listen or re-watch that service about the songs of lament. I've watched it and rewatched it several times this past year. Also, there's a sister verse that went along with this from Joel 2.25, where God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You may wonder, why plant? It just seems like as if everything that comes up gets eaten. Locusts were something that came in and swarmed through as a plague and ate up all of their crops. Think of all the hard work it takes to get something to grow and have something just come in and just wipe it out in an instant. That's a metaphor for so many things in life. And you wonder, why, why start again? Why begin a new relationship? Why even try? It just seems like it all gets eaten up. And there's this promise from God, I will repay you. Sometimes in this side of eternity, sometimes on the other side of eternity. But I will repay you, God says for the years the locusts have eaten. Because sometimes it's God who sends the locust for whatever his reasons may be. And he says, I'll repay you for that. You just got to trust that I will do what I say that I'm going to do. So if you're going through a difficult time or know somebody who's gone through a difficult time, uh, I highly encourage you to go back and re-listen to some of the messages from that series. Now, if you are not going through a difficult time or don't know what it is to experience a difficult time, try parenting. Uh, you will experience that the struggle is real, which was the next series we went into was The Struggle is Real. parenting. The struggle is real, but the question is, what is the struggle? Is the struggle just to get them into bed at night? Is the struggle getting them out of bed in the morning? Uh, what is really the struggle with parenting? Some of you are thinking, all of that is the struggle with parenting. And we began by saying, no, one of the real struggles in parenting is to not parent the way you were parented. Most people would say, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. There was some level of dysfunction in my home. Yet, we will also find, most studies show, most of us parent the way our parents parented us. How does that make any sense? Yeah, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. How are you going to do it? Well, I don't know. I guess I turned out okay, so I'll just parent the way my parents did. <laughs> Makes no sense whatsoever. We looked at it and said, let's look to a better example. And how is it that our Heavenly Father has parented us? The real struggle is to try to parent the way God has parented us. And we saw six things that are evident in God's parenting of us. That he parents us with unconditional love, grace when we fail, blessings through approval and acceptance, teaching and guidance, discipline to correct unhealthy attitudes and behaviors, and also providing and protecting for us as a heavenly, loving father. Now, so one struggle is to parent like God's parented us, and in the midst of that, there's an even deeper struggle, and that is to get all of those things in the right balance. So oftentimes, we will focus on one to the exclusion of others, and so you have folks who are all discipline and no love, and when you have that kind of situation, you've got a kid who grows up with resentment and is just waiting to rebel against their parents. As soon as they turn 18, they're gone, and they're gone for good. Some of you were that way. Uh, sometimes parents will go the opposite way. They'll go all love and no discipline. Please don't bring those kids to our church. <laughs> Sorry, I'm... <laughs> no, we, there are some loving people down that hallway that are saints that you need to be praying for right now and thank on your way out because there are parents who do not discipline their kids and their kids think they can do no wrong and destroy everything. I probably shouldn't have said all of that. Um, 
there are parents who do all providing and no teaching, and those kids grow up quite spoiled because their parents just give and give and give and never teach those kids the value of a hard day's work or of earning anything. There are parents who are all instruction and no blessing, and those, ki- those parents are always correcting, always training, always correcting, always instructing, and those kids always grow up feeling as if they can't do anything right with a really low self, self-esteem. The struggle is finding a way to parent the way God parents with all of these things in balance, which is very, very difficult. Now, while I was in the midst of doing that series, in the um, midst of that series, I had a leadership event that I had to lead, and so I was listening to some talks on leadership, and so as I was going through these leadership talks, I kept coming and talking to our staff. I was like, man, so many of these leadership talks really could be applied to life. They could be applied to our spiritual life. They could be applied to our parenting situations, and so that led into us doing it, and other people on staff were like, yeah, I've got some of those too, and so over the summer, uh, we did a series called A Life Well-Led, looking at leadership principles that impact the rest of our life. Once I was shown was inside then and spit on that good advice. Wisdom, wisdom, where can I get some? Some of you may wonder, why is it God won't use me to be a leader of influence? Uh, how is it that I can be the kind of person that God uses? And one of the most important thing, principles I think we pulled out of that series was, most leaders are self-selected. In other words, they just begin to lead. Nobody had donned them as leader, anointed them as leader. Yeah, there's those times in Scripture where God comes and anoints uh, Samuel or anoints David to be the next king kind of thing. Uh, But other times, people just show up. Sometimes just being there and offering to help, and you're there, and you're there so much, eventually you just become a leader that God uses. And so uh, there are several other principles. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to... uh, kind of move on. Uh, I actually skipped over one of the, the most important messages of the year, which was Aloha Summer. We were so ready. This was around the time where summer was beginning. They were finally listing a lo- lifting a lot of the quarantine restrictions in restaurants and everywhere else, and we just were ready to just come out and walk away from being locked up and locked inside and locked down and all those locked things. And so we just had a huge party here. About over 700 people showed up because they were just ready to get out. Uh, we called it Aloha Summer. Someday you wish upon a star, wake up where the clouds are far behind. Be somewhere over the rainbow. That was a good day. Um, it's funny, some series from this past year, I look back on them and I just instantly am filled with joy. That's one of them. Uh, the, 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 the title verse for that, the, on the back of the shirt, the back of the logo there, was from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, it's where this woman who's been single for a long time, some of y'all can identify with me, right? Been single for a long time. And she's about to get married. And she's saying that she's entering into a new era, that, that there's a, the relationship she's looked for all of her life has finally happened. And she says, see, the winter has passed. The rains are over and gone. And flowers now appear on the earth. And the season of singing has come. Now, uh, many of y'all have experienced long terms of singlehood. I have as well. For some of you, it's because you haven't been married yet. For some of you, it's because you got married and are divorced. For some of you, you've been married and your spouse has died. Unfortunately, I've experienced every form of singlehood you can have. And so I identify with this verse about just wanting that long winter uh, of life to end. And what I loved about this verse, especially with the the play from the series that came before it, is where she says, the rains have gone, the season of singing has come. And why? It's because she was likely one who, during the difficult times, 
in her tears she sowed. She sowed with tears that now she can reap with songs of joy. It was in the winter seasons where she was working to become the kind of person she needed to become so that God could bless her in the way that he wanted to bless her in that time and season. So there's a really beautiful picture there. We talked about how spiritual growth happens slowly over time, but it's the kind of thing that needs to be watered and nurtured and grown even in the difficult times. And so that was our series, Aloha Summer, which then we went into Life Well Led, and then after the end of the summer, we came out of that with a, ah, I'll, I'll admit, it was not a very uplifting message series, but it was real. It was true. Is there a sinner here looking for God? Yes. We have a sinner with us here who wishes for salvation. Daniel, are you a sinner? Yes. Oh, the Lord can hear you, Daniel. Say it to him. Go ahead and speak to him. It's all right. I'm a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Louder, Daniel! I am a sinner! I am a sinner! Is there a sinner here looking for God? Well, say it. God can't hear you! Louder! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am a sinner. Uh, so often we don't want to say I'm a sinner because we don't want to call what we did a sin. We want to call it a mistake. It was a mistake. It wasn't a sin. It was a mistake. And the thing about a mistake is, well, I don't even have to ask for forgiveness for a mistake because it's kind of assumed that you're going to forgive me your mistake. All I got to say is, oh, it was a mistake. I don't have to say I'm sorry. I just got to say it was a mistake. And it's just sort of assumed that then you're going to forgive what I did because it was a mistake. And if you can't forgive without me asking for what I did as being a mistake, well, that's on you. That's not on me. You've got a problem, not me. It's all on you because you can't understand that people make mistakes. So we want to be called a mistaker, not a sinner. <laughs> the reality is, though, I'm a sinner. But if you look at their screen up there, it got a little worse than that when you started reading Jesus. I didn't just have to say I'm a sinner. Let's get a little more specific. I'm a murderer. Let's say that one. Okay, your parole officer is not here. <laughs> say it loud. I'm a murderer. murderer. Yeah, you've wanted that person who cut you off in traffic to disappear from the face of the earth. You wish you didn't have to work with her anymore. You wish he wasn't around anymore. Jesus says, when you have those feelings, it's just like murder. I am a murderer. And I'm not even going to ask any questions. Let's just go ahead and say, I am an adulterer. Just say it. I am an adulterer. Yeah, because none of us are doing sex right. It's almost, I think it's nearly impossible in America to do sex right. I don't know why that was so funny. It's just true. <laughs> I'm just going to move on from that one. <laughs> but that was disrespectful. Um, see, the thing is, is if, I'm a, if I just made mistakes, I don't really have a need for God. But when you get to the point where you realize I am a sinner, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, where do I find help for that? Where do I find forgiveness for that? See, when you realize that you're a sinner, what you at some point begin to realize is I need a Savior. I need a Savior. I need a God who will love me no matter what I've done, no matter who I am. Because if it's up to what I've done and who I've become, I'm without hope. And so when you get to the point where you can say, God, I am a sinner, I desperately need you, you'll also see God saying, 
yeah, but you are loved. And I love you with a love that is not based on what you've done. And you are worthy of my love simply because I've chosen to set my love upon you. And you are his. You are his child. So in the one breath I can say, I am a sinner, I'm a murderer, I'm a adulterer, but I also can say, I am a child of God. And I am loved by my Father. And he called me by name from the ends of the earth to bring me back in with him. And then more incredibly even than that, as we also read in Scripture, that I am actually essential to what God is doing to redeem all of humanity. I am called to be an active part of what God is doing to redeem all of humanity. And so in that series, we took a really strong look at who it is that we truly are in Christ and outside of Christ. And it was, I am a sinner, but I am also essential to what God is doing. After that, uh, now I said the Aloha series brought back all these warm feelings. I just feel good every time I think about Aloha, uh, that's that series, uh, the bumper for that series. This next series, I honestly wanted to skip in this review because I get PTSD issues just thinking about the series or hearing the music from it. Maybe you do too. Anybody with me on that? I don't want to talk. I don't want to have the talk. I don't want to have the talk with you, and I don't want you to have to have a talk with me. I don't want to do any of this talking stuff. Uh, they're not fun conversations. But the reality is there are certain times in life where we do need to talk, and that talk has to happen. Um, and so for some of you, you needed to send that text. For some of you, when you received that text, you needed to respond back to that text. And in that series, we talked about how do we apply out the principle we see from Ephesians 4.15, which is to speak the truth in love. It talks about how that's the only path to maturity, is to speak the truth in love. That's really hard to do, uh, to speak the truth in love. Uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love so you can become mature in Christ. Now, the thing about Jesus was he was full of grace and truth. That was so amazing about Jesus. He was full of both. So often that we think we have to choose between grace or truth, and we say things like, well, you want me to be honest or you want me to be nice? That's a sucker's choice. To, to believe that you can only do one or the other. God never says one or the other. He says you need to find a way to do both. To be honest and be nice in being honest. And when you have that talk that we need to talk, you have to be both. Uh, if, you, if you think that you have to be one or the other, you're going to go into one, one of two places. Either to silence where you don't say anything. You want to be nice or you want to be honest? You want to be nice? Okay, I won't say anything. So you go to silence. And that doesn't do the relationship any favors. Things only get worse. Or you go to violence. And that's where it's like, oh, well, I don't have to be nice. I'm going to tell you how it is. And this is the person who gets very brutal. They, they, they love the brutal, brutal truth and brutal honesty because they are brutal with the way that they talk to you. And we've all worked with or been around somebody who is one or the other of those two things. Now, what God wants us to do is to speak the truth in love. And when we do that, if you go back in that series, you'll see there are things that we do need to say in that conversation, but also there are things we need to communicate that we're not saying. It's where if you have, let's just say if you're in an employee relationship, where you might come to somebody and say, hey, I, I want to let you know before we begin, I am not firing you. You are a valuable part of this team, and I'm not telling you that I don't want you to be here. I'm not telling you that you can't contribute. What I am talking to you about this morning is your need to be here on time. See, there's a do's and a don'ts that you're trying to communicate in that conversation. That's how you speak the truth in love. Much more complicated than that. Took a few weeks to get through. Uh, how do we receive that kind of a conversation? All that was in that series on speaking the truth in love uh, for the we need to talk. Whew, let's move on so we can have some relief. Series after that was on uh, how God commands us to love him, which seemed kind of awkward. Don't leave. 
found it odd when I read in Deuteronomy 30 that God commands us to love him. I mean, just think if some boy commanded your teenage daughter to love him. How would you feel about that? It's kind of how I felt the first time I read that God was commanding me to love him. But if you think about it this way, who you love in life or who you love the most in life will determine more about you than anything else in your life. It will determine the kind of person you become. It will determine how you see yourself, and it will determine a lot about the choices you make. You see, when the person you love speaks truth into your life, you see yourself in a positive light. If they're always putting you down, it's going to destroy how you see yourself. If the person you love wants what's best for you, they're going to encourage you to make good decisions in your life. If the person who you love is very selfish and a taking from you, they're going to push you to make very destructive choices in your life. So when you think about that, how important is it that you love God more than anybody else and allow God to be the one who speaks the truth in your life about who you are? Allow God to be the one that you look to when you're looking to make decisions in your life, when you look to God to determine who you become in this life. How important is that? Is it important enough for God to say, I really highly recommend this, I strongly implore you to, or is that a place where God should just come out in the most forceful, powerful way and just say, you need to do this. Are you commanding me? Yes, yes I am. It's that important that you do this. It is that important. I can't leave this to chance at that point. Then after that, we talked about how, uh, how every relationship, every loving relationship, we know instinctively loving relationships involve trust. You, you don't have a relationship without trust, right? However, when it talks about, we talk about trusting God, we get very confused because we don't use the word trust. We use this churchy word that we gets defined wrongly. We talk about faith. When we talk about faith, we, seem to, we tend to think that, we're, that God's asking us to believe in him. But God comes back and he says, listen, demons believe in me. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a relational trust. In the same way that in any relationship that you would have, you would say it's founded on love and trust, a relational trust. In the same way God says, I want you to that same kind of relational trust in me, that you trust me with your life, that you trust me with your eternity, that you trust me that I will forgive you for your sins, that I will not pour out my wrath on you, but rather I'll pour it out on my own son instead of you. That's what it means to have faith in God. So we say that this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with God. We're talking about love. We're talking about a loving trust of God. But we're also talking about putting God in a healthy place. And we talked about what does it mean to fear God? That's another one of those really badly translated words. It's really putting God in his proper context, having a holy reverence of who God is and not forgetting the place we are before God and not getting so comfortable around God that we are dismissive of our relationship with God, that there should be a holy reverence and awe and respect about our relationship with God in the same way there are with other relationships that you might have. Uh, I always, you know, with kids, what, if, what happens if they have a not so healthy fear of the hot stove? Not a good place to be. Fear isn't always about fearing something's destroying you. Sometimes it's about understanding what it is and its power in your life. And so we talked about the need to have a loving, healthy, respectful relationship with God. And once we have that, how is it that we express that? Well, we moved into another series after that, saying, God, well, here is my heart. And I love this clip. Oh, and Shetty, not for nothing. Can't get me not to like you. Outside of characters like the one in that movie or maybe TV shows like Ted Lasso, 
where do you find somebody with that kind of an attitude? I mean, is that really, does that really exist where somebody is just, you can't get me not to like you. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how mean you are to me, I'm going to turn it back with a smile and with grace and with love. See, we all love that kind of a person. We all want to be around that kind of a person. It's just hard to do that. And I don't know where you find a real-life example of that. It's great for TV. It's very popular with, when you watch TVs or movies. The only true example of that is the way Jesus Christ treated other people. That's just how he was. You couldn't get him to hate you. I mean, even people who tried to destroy him, he would still try to reach out to them. And the only time he ever got frustrated with them was when they were hurting other people. He never came down on somebody for what they did to him. He came down on them for what they were doing to other people. And he was just always loving back in response, even when people mocked him, even when people spit on him. Um, so how is it that we have that kind of love? Uh, well, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he looks to others and he says, love one another as you love yourself. Because for some of us, that's all we know is a self-love. Later on, though, he would look to his disciples and say, love one another as I have loved you. Which is why many of his disciples, when they're writing about Jesus Christ, they say, we didn't know what love was until we experienced the kind of love that Jesus Christ had for us. And when you really experience the kind of love God has for you, that's what can fuel you having love for other people. And so how do we primarily express our love to God? How do we pay Jesus Christ back for all the love he's shown on us? He says, love those who are around you. Love those that I love. Love those who are in this world. I've created all these people around you. We love God by how we love others. We love God by expressing by what we do with the things that he's given us and blessed us with. And so that's where we ended off the the year with was a series about how we love God. And of course, there was the Misfit series for a week or two at Christmas. The question, though, that comes back is, what will you do with all of these things? How much of these things over this past year do we even remember? How many of these things have you begun to apply or work out in your life? Whether or not you're building on the rock or on sand has nothing to do with what you're hearing. It has everything to do with what you are doing. And my encouragement to you this, this coming year is to apply the things that God has placed in your life and, and taught you through his word. We join with me to close our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for your love and I thank you for your grace. That even though we've messed up time and time again, your love is still greater than all of our sins. May we become a church, Father, that shows the same kind of grace that you've shown for us to others to remove every non-essential barrier between people and you. May we help other people grow as we also grow in our relationship with you too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.